This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. So thanks so much for being here today. My name is Luella D'Amico, and I'm director of the Women's and Gender Studies program here at Whitworth. Um, I'm so excited to introduce Sarah Bessie, whose visit is sort of the cornerstone of our celebration of Women's History Month here at at Whitworth. Um, Of course, I'm first compelled to tell you about some of our upcoming events for Women's and Gender Studies here on campus. So on March 31st, we're helping host um, a compilation of student experiences called the Diversity Monologues, which I'm hoping many of you have heard of, which will be at um, 7 o'clock in the Robinson Teaching Theater. And in April, we have two really big events. We're sponsoring a walk at Whitworth to combat domestic violence in conjunction with Take Back the Night on April 22nd. And on April 28th, we're sponsoring a talk by Dr. Will Gaffney, a famed biblical scholar and Episcopal priest who will be speaking about interfaith relations. please like our Women's and Gender Studies page on Facebook for more information about these events and other ones. I also have um, business cards and brochures in the back um, if you guys want to, to pick those up. And I've also been told that if you're here for extra credit for CORE, that you can sign up after the Q&A um, in the back on that table over there. <laughs> So now that all the important stuff is over with. So having discussed all of these other events, um, I'm going to be perfectly honest in saying that I have never had as much buzz around any event as I have this one tonight. I mean, I think you can sort of look around the room and feel that already. Um, And I feel almost unqualified to give Sarah the introduction she deserves. my personal introduction to feminism was through the undergraduate classroom, as I'm sure many of you have had the same thing. And I'll be honest that I never quite heard my voice there. There was anger and resentment about inequality that I fully bought into, but sort of the peaceful unification that my Christian heart yearned for just seemed to be lacking. So at my core, I knew I was a feminist, yet if I mentioned my faith to my academic friends, it seemed that somehow I was less of one, or perhaps not one at all. Similarly, it wasn't exactly easy mentioning my feminist leanings in any of my church events either. So as I went on with my studies, I learned how to integrate these two sort of disparate selves, the mind and heart, as we like to think of them at Whitworth. And... Yet how to do so was never really discussed in any textbook that I encountered. So Sarah's work in many ways codifies what I believe Christian feminists have been yearning for for decades. I learned about her not because I was a follower of her famous blog or even because I knew in my own personal reading about her books, Jesus Feminist or Out of Sorts, which are on sale back there if you guys want them. Um, But yay! But I learned about her because faculty and students in my office as Women's and Gender Studies Director um, would just sort of invoke her name as, of course, I would know who Sarah Bessie was. So Sarah's name in and of itself sort of came to represent a movement on ca- here on campus and it seems in the wider community of young Christian feminists today who are tired of being labeled as either too far-reaching or not far-reaching enough in their quest for everyday justice. So after nodding and smiling quite a bit in my office as if I knew who Sarah was, I ordered Jesus Feminist, and my heart felt full after reading it. Here she is finally, I thought, someone who recognizes the pain of inequality and the wholeness and utter non-judgment that Jesus offers too. 
Sarah's words are clear, well-spoken, and resonant, hence her popularity in student and faculty circles alike, not to mention the sheer number of calls and emails from the community at large in Spokane I received about her visit. A few days after finishing Jesus Feminist, I began working to bring Sarah to campus. And that's how we're here tonight. Um, so I want to thank the chapel and the Warehouser Center for helping make this visit possible. And without further ado, I present Sarah Bessie. Does that sound good? All right, that was, that was difficult. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I thought it would be just me in the room, so yay. <laughs> okay, this is good. Um, if you guys mind if I take just a minute? I, I, just, need to, I just need a second if that's okay. Oh. Jesus, you are everything to us. And in all of these discussions and all of these conversations and all the ways that our hearts feel like they are lit within us and our minds are racing ahead, may we never forget that you are the center of this, that you are the answer to it. Help me get out of the way. Amen. All right, well, I'm very glad to be here with all of you. Um, actually, incredibly glad. I, I do have to warn you, though, I had uh, an event in um, California on Friday and then got stuck in the windstorm on the West Coast, and so I was supposed to be able to go home and get fresh clothes, but instead, we're on day six. So <laughs> I'm a bit rumpled and I smell like coffee, but that's okay. Um, so for those of you who maybe don't know who I am, hello. Uh, I am glad that you're here. So I'm Sarah. Uh, for those of you um, who maybe aren't as familiar with my work, I'm from Western Canada, uh, from a small city just outside of Vancouver uh, called Abbotsford. Um, I could play it cool and pretend that it's not as beautiful as I'm sure you've all seen in um, the news or on the Olympics, but that's just fine because from what I hear, most of you will be coming to visit us after your next presidential election, so <laughs> that's nice. That's really nice. I'm glad you're all going to be visiting us. That'll be lovely. Don't get me in trouble. Wouldn't be the first time I've been in trouble, though. <laughs> so I'm a writer um, and an author, and I've written two books now. I've also been blogging since back in the day before MySpace when we were all on Live Journal and Zanga. Um, for those of you who were likely in grade five at that moment, I'm sure it was really depressing. <laughs> uh, I have four children. I've been married for about 15 years. Uh, my children are nine and a half, seven and a half, five, and uh, if you're keeping track, that is in fact four babies and three, uh, three babies in four years. And uh, then we had one last little baby just this last year. She turned one year old last Tuesday. Her name is Margaret. We call her Maggie because Margaret feels like a very big name for someone who is so small that it will suit her perfectly when she is prime minister. <laughs> so. So, um, you know, I find sometimes this role of being here in the front a little bit weird for me. Um, obviously, that uh, it's not something that I feel incredibly comfortable with. Uh, I see myself more probably at the core as a writer. 
Um, and yet, isn't it just amazing how God will often surprise us with all the ways that we just never would have imagined in the places where we would have ended up? Uh, I don't think anybody is more surprised than me that some happy, clappy mum from Western Canada has somehow become an authority on scripture in the church uh, and theology and all these things. Um, it is quite laughable at times. And, and so I get a lot of comfort out of that reminder that God will often use the foolish things to confound the wise. I'm under no illusion that I am the foolish thing <laughs> at times. Um, so, you know, my faith background, just to give you a bit of a baseline, I guess, from where I came from, uh, my parents are first-generation Christians, and I grew up in um, Saskatchewan in, you know, more working-class, uh, you know, home, uh, where we were probably what would be considered now sociologically like a post-Christian society, right? Uh, it was my great-grandparents who were the ones, last generation, who actually went to church. And so we didn't know anybody who went to church, didn't have any really connection with any of, um, you know, kind of the traditions of Christianity. Um, and my parents were probably about my age right now, so I would have been about the age of my children. And we had a little girl who was a babysitter for us. She was 14 years old. She was, uh, came from a Mennonite family. And she went to church camp, and they encouraged her to go home and win people for Jesus. And she looked around and thought, well, my circle's quite small, but I do know this one group of heathens um, <laughs> who I'm sure would really need to know Jesus. And so she didn't really know how to have that conversation. And so her way of doing that was to buy our family a little Christmas present. And it was a record. Um, it was, that's the way we used to listen to music in the 70s. <laughs> and she bought us a vinyl record um, uh, called Bullfrogs and Butterflies. So I don't know if anybody from my generation was around at, at that time. So my sister and I were quite young, and we would listen to this record, and it um, would say things like how uh, nothing compared to knowing God, not even riding your bike. And, uh, and we liked it. It was very poppy and, you know, fun to listen to, and we didn't have a whole lot of records in our house, and so we pretty much wore it out. Um, but while I was gone uh, at school, my sister and I at the lane across the house, uh, my mom used to sit with that record player and just listen to that, those songs over and over and cry and cry because it was the first time she ever heard the gospel. And some part of her just hit that frequency of knowing that this was it. This is what she had been longing for. This was everything that we'd ever wanted. And so we ended up in a, you know, kind of course of events like a lot of families who are first-generation believers in really small, um, you know, organic kind of churches that weren't, you know, within any sort of formalized denomination, just a group of misfits who really needed resurrection, uh, finding ourselves in places like leisure centers and community centers and someone's basement sitting on Granny's Chesterfield. And there was always too many tambourines in the room, <laughs> listening to like bootleg copies of American preachers on tape. <laughs> And I look back on that now, and it was a really sweet and beautiful way to, to come into the kingdom of God or come into the, the family of God. Uh, but in a lot of ways, we were very naive. We didn't know what we didn't know. Um, you know, this is before the internet, before everybody had an option to tell you how you're doing it wrong. Um, and so we ended up just really feeling um, excited and learned, and we, we were uh, looking forward to following Jesus. It meant everything to us. Um, but at the same time, I didn't learn him until I was in my 20s. And I didn't have a clue where I fit in the larger church story. And I didn't understand that we were different because we were okay with having women who were preaching. 
and we were okay with having women who were leading. And our marriages were really focused on this idea of submitting to one another. Uh, to me, that was just how everybody did it. And so, surprise, it's not. So I share all that as, so you have more of a baseline, more for who I am. Uh, and I want you to hear my words within the context of where I come from. I think that those things matter. Uh, and I think that the reason why they matter is because um, those things inform my opinions, they inform my work, they inform how I have come to these conversations. But above all, I want you to be aware that I know my place in this room, and that is that I still have a lot to learn. Um, I'm under no illusions. I know there are many of you here in this room who could probably school me on this very topic, uh, let alone many others. And so I do come alongside of you uh, and do my best to come alongside of you out of my own experiences, out of my own um, understanding of scripture and theology and church and all these ways where I've encountered just the ways that Jesus upends everything in the most beautiful and whole ways. So my uh, most recent book that uh, just came out last November is called Out of Sorts. And it's about making peace with an evolving faith with all the ways that we change and shift in our spiritual formation. I find that oftentimes that's a time of our life we don't shepherd really well. That season in your life when you begin to sort of doubt and question and all the things that used to add up are suddenly not adding up any longer. And all the formulas that used to work don't work anymore. Um, so that's, that's the book I wrote for that. But to me, uh, tonight we're going to be talking a bit more about Jesus Feminist, um, which I wrote probably about five years ago. That uh, came out in 2013. And I think that if anybody wins for the book title that manages to upset everyone, <laughs> yay, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> so Jesus Feminist was uh, certainly, you know, a bit electrifying for a lot of people. Um, but for me, it was never really meant to be a book about Christian feminist theory. Uh, first of all, I'm not an academic. And that there are so many people who have written so well within the um, academic world about issues of egalitarianism, which is kind of the seminary or theological term for, for having full equality between men and women in the church. And so people were writing really well about it in there. And then for people like me who grew up in churches like that, we were living it out. But for some reason, there was just kind of this disconnect where you never really saw it kind of connecting with sometimes the general populace. And, and that wasn't really happening. Um, but, but beyond all that, I mean, it really did grow very organically out of my life and out of the things that I was uh, passionate about because for me, it was never really a book about Christian feminist theory. It was always a book about the kingdom of God and a, a book about what it looks like when we are all walking together in wholeness, what God's vision is for us, what God's dream is for us as men and as women, and what it actually looks like on the other side of saying, yes, I affirm this and I see that this is what this looks like. So even though I knew I wanted to have a chance to kind of grapple with some of those big questions for people who were still questioning and in that place, I also wanted it to be a big sense of invitation to say that there was nothing really to be afraid of, that this is what marriage looks like, this is what church can look like, this is what it looks like on the other side. You know, I knew um, when I was writing this book that it would definitely receive um, its own fair share of criticism. I had been blogging by 10 years by that time, and so I don't know if you know this or not, but people on the internet are very kind to let you know when they disagree with you. If there's anything that has cured me of people-pleasing, it's daring to have an opinion on the internet. <laughs> 
And so, I mean, I knew that there would be kind of that sort of, um, you know, conversation that may arise, particularly because five years ago, um, the conversation hadn't progressed even to where it was, is now. Um, it hasn't hadn't been, become quite as nuanced even. But where I ended up finding um, almost some surprise was not just in terms of the pushback and criticism and disagreements, which, I mean, that's just only fair. There's always going to be people who do that. Um, you know, I'm not so vain as to think they're all haters, right? <laughs> some people have legitimate criticisms, and I can learn from that. But the other thing, I find it kind of dehumanizing to consider everyone who disagrees with you a hater. But anyway... You know, I remember this one organization that was planning on um, reviewing it, and they had gone on record as being very uh, contrary to the things that I believed about women, uh, not just myself, obviously, a lot of, a lot of other people. Um, and they had let me know that they were planning on doing a review of the book and putting it out there on, uh, for everybody to read, so I was like, ready. Right? I was ready to deal with what was going to come. I was ready to deal with the review and then the pushback and this kind of the storm that sometimes, uh, you know, happens after something like that um, goes on. Uh, but the date came and went for the review and it never appeared. And so I quickly contacted the, the person who had um, planned on doing the review that I, they had let me know her name. And I said, did the date get moved? I'd like to kind of know so I can build the bunker and everything's set. Um, <laughs> If anything has changed, I'd love it if you'd let me know. And she said, well, actually, she said, um, we've pulled the review. We're not going to, be going to be reviewing the book. And I was like, you know, surprised, obviously. So I asked her why. And her answer was that the reason why they pulled it is because she told everyone to read it. She said, um, I don't agree with you. You haven't changed my mind. And I said, yet. You know, <laughs> give me time. <laughs> but what she said was, I began to realize that we had created this straw man argument on our side, where we had said, people who don't think the same way we do don't love Jesus. They don't have a high view of scripture. They um, don't esteem marriage. They don't esteem motherhood as a worthy vocation. Um, they don't, uh, you know, want to honor the local church let alone the global church. And so this is everything that's evil and wrong with our society. And so we really need to keep everybody in this camp. And she said, and in reading your book, I realized that that was wrong. That yes, we may be fundamentally disagree on how we read scripture, but that doesn't mean you don't love scripture. And maybe we disagree on how to function within a marriage, but that doesn't mean you don't have a healthy and beautiful and life-giving marriage. And we have dehumanized your side. And she said, so I said all that in the review and recognized and affirmed that we all follow and love Jesus and turned it in with a recommendation for all of our pastors and leaders to read it and they said they wouldn't run it and so I quit. And at the time, um, I remember feeling a lot of um, sadness about that but also a tremendous sense of this is how it happens. Sometimes change doesn't happen from the top down in a major organization. It happens from heart to heart and conversation by conversation and relationship by relationship. Uh, her repentance, her humility uh, really struck me in that moment. And so rather than running a positive review, they, they simply didn't review it, but she did. She read it and she talked about it. And I believe that we've created a new relationship and movement out of that. Uh, it's a bit more organic, maybe not quite as flashy, but it's enough. So in almost every review, uh, interview or conversation that I've done over this book over the last few years, almost everybody has uh, two questions. First of all, people want to know why I wrote the book. And then they want to know um, whether or not I actually have any hope on this issue. 
So I thought I would use those uh, two questions as kind of our jumping off point for this evening for our conversation. Um, I know that we might have, a, if we have time, we'll open it up for a bit of a Q&A, but if we don't, then at least these two big ones will get answered. Um, so the question, that when people ask me, why did I actually write this book? Why did I write Jesus Feminist? Uh, I feel like the better question is asking ourselves why it was even necessary. Um, because it's my belief that most of the seminal social issues of our time, whether it is poverty or lack of education, um, human trafficking, war and torture and domestic abuse, all of these things really do track their way back to our theology of women, right? And oftentimes our theology, when I say th theology, what I mean is what we actually think and believe about God and then how we actually live that out in our lives. So it's, that's what I mean when I talk about theology. And so that theology that we actually have about women also tips our hand for what we believe about the nature and character of God, of who we believe God actually is, of what we hope for, of what we're longing for. And so, for me, no longer being ignorant to the fact that women are more likely to be maimed or die from male violence than from cancer and war and malaria and traffic accidents combined. Or that one-third of women face abuse and 70% of female murder victims are killed by their male partners and when we know that more than 135 million women and little girls have undergone genital mutilation. And let me tell you, when you talk to some midwives about what life is like when you're trying to give birth to children after that, you don't really forget it. And when you know that women compose 70% of the world's poorest people and they own less than 1% of the titled land in the world, and you know that women worldwide, not just in our communities, but all around the globe, suffer from an equal access to education and to sanitation and training. Um, when you see how in the news women don't receive equal pay for equal work, um, or even how, you know, if you flip through a high fashion magazine and you see how everybody thinks it's incredibly artistic to depict sexualized violence against women because won't that sell some shoes? And I don't know about your community, but we've been rocked several times by stories of young 15-year-olds or 16-year-olds at parties who get drugged and raped, and somebody posts a video onto Facebook or Snapchat and sends it around through text. The thing is, is that these statistics and stories for me, that's just it, they're not really stats to me. These are all women. My background is actually in working with women in a residential home uh, who struggle with life-controlling issues, drug and alcohol abuse, physical and sexual abuse, uh, victims of human trafficking, any of those things. And those are actually people. It's not just that they're someone's mother or someone's sister or someone's cousin or their friend or their daughter. It's that they're human and that's enough, right? And so these are the things I think about when people often ask me, why did you write this book? Um, because aren't we past it, right? Do we even need to discuss this any longer? Haven't we evolved past it? And so a big part of me honestly wrote the book because part of me wonders if we are missing the point with lots of debates about what, what women should and shouldn't do and can you teach boys in Sunday school who are over the age of 10 or 11 and can women preach or should they read scripture in mixed company and all these kind of false boundaries of life and ministry and leadership. It's just such an adventure in missing the point and it seems like such small, small arguments that betray what a small, small God you think we have. 
because I really believe in the core of myself that our good and big God is at work in the world and we get to participate in that. That we are people who get to co-create however God has gifted and called each one of us. And that I don't think that you necessarily need to identify as a feminist to participate in the redemptive movement of God at all. Um, you know, I know sometimes labels can be hard for some people. But as long as I know how important maternal health is to women's health and futures and the future of the country in Haiti, and as long as I know that women that I know and love are being abused and raped, as long as I know ISIS has little girls ca caught up in sex slavery camps or as young as nine years old, and as long as I know that girls are being denied life itself through selective abortions and abandonment because young women are not valued as highly as men, and as long as little girls are having acid thrown in their face in Afghanistan for the crime of going to school, and as long as churches are encouraging women who are abused to stay put because they think that'll somehow glorify God. And until being a Christian is synonymous with caring about those things, I don't mind if you want to call me a feminist too. My hope is that being a Christian will be synonymous with caring and noticing and doing something about it. So for me, learning how to say yes to God's plan for wholeness and redemption for all of us means that I'm okay with that. And what's more is I'm thankful for it. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people who find the word feminist um, jarring. Um, particularly people I think who came up in maybe a certain era in, in the United States, I understand, from the moral majority and whatever else. Um, that has happened. But you know what? For me, honestly, I felt really good about using that word right from the time I was very young, um, maybe because of the home I grew up in. But even there, you know, my folks didn't really identify with feminist. It was just kind of a, well, that was for the extremists, right? It wasn't for all of us good church-going ladies. <laughs> and so for me, um, when I became very active in women's issues in my late teens and early 20s, and then as I said, kind of this trajectory continued throughout my life, it made a lot of sense for me to say, well, of course I'm a feminist. Um, I was totally fine with that. I mean, those were the things that I cared about. These were the things I was active in. Um, and, but it was funny to me how often when I would say things like, well, of course I'm a feminist. Uh, and you know, people in church would clutch their pearls. <laughs> you know, and ask me, well, what kind of feminist are you? And I knew what they meant by that question, right? Because somehow they couldn't really square their idea of what they'd been told about what a feminist is or who a feminist is with who, they, who I am. Um, you know, you don't seem to hate men. You seem to be, you know, you like your husband <laughs> and your dad. You don't have any deep father wounds. You seem to be a stay-at-home mom and you drive a minivan. So I'm glad I'm not threatening to people, but that, even that worries me. <laughs> like somehow there's some sort of acceptable kind of feminist to be, right? I'm like the gateway feminist. <laughs> I'm not going to make any jokes about, like, marijuana and Mo Hushington either, so I'm <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> But oftentimes when people were asking me, they were saying, well, aren't you like one of those feminists who's responsible for all these things that we're supposed to be afraid of, right? I've heard, you know, Christians blame feminists for everything from like daycare to bikinis to yoga pants, tornadoes and hurricanes, 9-11, gay people are the fault of feminists. All these things... <laughs> And it's funny because it feels a little ridiculous 
But oftentimes people had never heard. They didn't know. They didn't know even what a feminist was. If it wasn't this scary thing, then what is a feminist? And so it was a bit cheeky, to be honest, because right off the bat I'd say, oh, I'm a Jesus feminist. And all I really meant by that was that I was a feminist precisely because I love Jesus. It was following Jesus that made a feminist out of me. That it wasn't something that was separate from my faith, that it was the very intersection that made both happen, right? That Jesus was what led me to care about these things and to think that it mattered and that my yes in this mattered and that I had a role to play here and that this wasn't right and it wasn't God's dream for us. Patriarchy was never God's dream for humanity. But then on the other side, it all connected. And so, you know, it started off as a bit of a joke. You know, I'm a Jesus feminist or whatever else, but then it started to actually make a lot of sense to me. Uh, it actually wasn't the original title of the book. I had some lovely poetic thing, and that just didn't fly. I don't even remember what it was anymore. I remember it was like one, ta- one chapter of a book, and my, agent, my publishing agent hooked it out and was like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so this idea of being a Jesus feminist and having those conversations with people whom I loved and people who were very dear to me, not people whom I looked down on, not people whom I thought I was so much more enlightened than, but people who I loved and who shaped these very opinions that I had landed on. Uh, for me, being able to say that if you believe women are people too, I hate to break it to you, but you are also a feminist. Because basically that's what it is, right? That feminism is not the same thing as matriarchy, and it certainly isn't the same thing as misanthropy. But there's no part of being a feminist that means that you hate men or that you have to withhold to certain political opinions and ideals. That there is a big tent of feminism, and really at the very core, it simply means equality. It simply means that you believe that men and women at the core, the rights, dignities, responsibilities, and even glories of womanhood are equal to those of men. It doesn't mean that you think that they're more, but it certainly means that you don't think women are less. And that is all it is. So, surprise, you're all feminists. And it's not so scary. And one of the things that I find often surprises people who are um, of faith and also surprises uh, a lot of secular feminists who, equal opportunity, sometimes have a difficult time believing that a woman of faith has anything to contribute at the com- to the conversation of feminism. And this isn't something that's restricted to the Christian conversation. We're seeing uh, feminist conversations in all sorts of communities of faith, Muslims, Jewish, Sikh, Mormons, feminist Mormon housewives. There's all sorts of places where these conversations are intersecting and rising up within feminism. So there is more openness now. But one of the things that uh, often surprises those people and people in church is that actually the origins of feminism are deeply connected to following Jesus. That 19th century, the first wave of feminism actually came about because of Christian women who were deeply passionate about following Jesus and who looked around them in their life and said, you know what, we need to actually care about what's happening with immigrant women. And we need to care what's happening for abolition and temperance and the suffragette movement. And all these reasons are the reasons why we are going to care about this and stay with it. Within the Canadian tradition, we had these, this amazing group of women. Uh, about a, we just celebrated the 100th year. Uh, Nellie McClung was one of them. Um, that just were so incredibly devout, so loved the Lord, 
and then had this connection to not only policy change, but even within their own lives um, on a day-to-day, person-to-person benefit of wanting to talk about things like socioeconomic justice, wanting to talk about how these things connected to the vote, wanting to talk about whether or not women should be recognized as persons under the law. These very things were because women followed Jesus. And even if that connection was lost a little bit in second and third wave wave feminism, there still has always been this robust contingency of women and men who were following these conversations precisely out of Christian conviction, not in spite of it, right? These aren't two things that are at war within each other. One of the things that I really love is that God is always the source of truth. And it doesn't matter what kind of false, weird lines we have created between here's what's Jesus-y or sacred and here's all the things that are secular, that all truth is God's truth and we can give thanks for any good works that are advancing the kingdom of God, right? The purposes of God, whether or not someone wants to acknowledge that Jesus is the core of that or not. I honestly believe that feminism is too necessary in our world to languish without the participation of the body of Christ. I think that we are needed. And so I would really love to see the church uh, reclaim our historic place in the Christian and the feminist movement and to become, I, don't you, wouldn't you just love for the church to become fierce champions for the dignities of women and for women's justice? To see that the daughters of the earth in every corner are crying out for justice and that we would actually be the safe place and the place where women, particularly those who are oppressed or marginalized, would feel safe and celebrated and recognized and honored. The girl can dream. One of the things that I really began to feel about a lot of these conversations as they relate to the kingdom of God, which is simply what God's heart is for us, right? Here's here's the way of life, the way God would want it to be. The thing is, is that we are all caught in these old structures, right? Evil, war, poverty, um, patriarchy, economic injustice, these systemic evils, racism, these things that continue from generation to generation. And I think one of the best things about being someone who follows Jesus is that instead of saying that those things aren't real, that right in the teeth of those structures and right in the teeth of those lies, we would erect signs of God's new world, that we would be the ones who serve as an outpost and a sign for what God's heart is for each one of us. That we would be able to give people a glimpse of what it looks like, what God's heart is for each one of us. So the the other side of this, of course, is that the feminist part sometimes gets me in trouble with churchy people. But the Jesus-y part gets me in trouble with the other side. I make nobody happy. And the reason why is because I'm a feminist, absolutely, but for me, first and foremost and always, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so me following Jesus informs my feminism, and it's not always the other way around. Uh, My allegiance is there. And so when people ask me oftentimes whether or not I'm hopeful about where things are, because oftentimes, you know, I had a, a good, good friend of mine, she's a professor at Pentecostal Theological Seminary. She's probably about the age of my mom. Uh, I was talking about her earlier tonight, actually. 
I remember her coming to me and saying, I'm glad you wrote your book, and I'm sorry because I re we really thought we'd be done by now. As evangelical feminists in the 70s and the ones who kind of came of age and wrote all the books and we had this tremendous movement underway, I, she goes, I think we just kind of thought it was over and we all went home and we didn't realize that people were going to double down really hard in the 80s and 90s. And there were going to be all these structures and institutions and, you know, scholarship would be set up to kind of reset on all of this. And one of the things um, that really struck me is how hopeful I still am even in that place. I know that um, there is a lot to be discouraged about. But here's the thing I believe most about hope is that it's incredibly subversive. And the reason why hope is subversive is because it is actually what is daring to admit that not everything is right. Right? Why would you even need hope, need hope if you didn't admit that there was something to hope about? And so I wonder if you can even really hope without having first grieved. If you haven't grieved, if you haven't suffered, if you haven't acknowledged, not this, just the statistics, but the stories, if you haven't acknowledged the inequities, if you haven't called those things that are what they are, and honestly admitted, here is the place where it is broken. Here are the things that are contrary to God's heart for us. Here are the things that are a violation of the very nature and character of God and what we are all hoping for and longing for and expecting. Then why would you even bother trying to light a candle in the midst of that darkness? The whole reason why you light a candle is because you admit that things are dark. And so for me, I feel like hope is actually a very natural Christian response to these things because we have things to be hopeful about. We know we're headed towards redemption. We know we're headed towards resurrection. We know that we are headed towards these things. We get to participate in it. We get to co-create in it. There's so many ways where we all get to come alongside of those things, and that is, it means that you don't feel powerless anymore. And you don't even feel like your candle's the only one out there because you look around and we're all here. These conversations are all still happening. There's so many ways that we are winning, so many ways we are pushing back the darkness moment by moment. And I hear so often about marriages that are changed and about churches that are shifting direction and whole communities that are being restored. And I know maybe it doesn't get as much attention on Twitter. But the light is just as real. And some part of me really loves being a part of a people who see the darkness, know it's real, call it out, and then dare to light a candle anyway. I think it takes a lot of courage, and it's easier to be brave when we're all together. You know, one of the things that I really believe about the kingdom of God is that it often does stand in direct contrast to the ways that we do things in this world. Um, I know that sometimes it can feel like our churches or, you know, certain churches or, or communities of Christians have almost baptized, you know, patriarchal language with sacred stuff and bought into things like militarism and entertainment and celebrity and materialism and patriarchal culture and whatever else. But I knew that when I became a disciple of Jesus, and for me that was something that happened about probably 15 years ago, where I felt like I was in a season of my life where, as I said earlier when I was talking about my, my second book that I wrote, where I just kind of felt like none of the answers worked anymore and I felt overwhelmed by the darkness. Not only did I feel overwhelmed by the darkness in the world and did I feel overwhelmed by the darkness in what we were dealing with and all these uh, big, huge stories and sometimes feeling like, is nobody else seeing this? Is nobody else really caring? Am I the only one having their heart broken? Am I the only one wondering why we are spending a million dollars on a fog machine? 
when there is a refugee crisis going on. So there were those, you know, sort of questions and, and, and grapplings that I was having. But then on top of that, I had my own sort of grief and questions and things that were happening even in my own life in so many ways um, that were really very close to my heart. And so I remember during that season being like, I cannot even identify as a Christian any longer because I don't want to be affiliated with these crazies. I hear a lot of people who are evangelicals are feeling that same way right now. And so I wanted the space that not calling myself a Christian would sort of give me. And so I just kind of like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what I would say to myself. And it's kind of just a trick of the language. I mean, it's obviously, obviously you're still a Christian. That's actually what it means. Surprise. <laughs> but I remember needing almost the emotional space that being like, I'm not a Christian. I can't call myself a Christian anymore, but I'm a follower of Jesus. And I remember actually having this moment of being like, I should probably find out what he actually thinks about things. It felt like for so long I had followed some version of churchianity that I didn't actually know what it meant to follow Jesus. I didn't really know, for me, was Jesus just another character in the Bible? Or is Jesus the whole lens through which this thing is read? Is Jesus the whole thing and the whole point? And so even though there was, and there is a place, and I believe that our times of deconstruction are so incredibly important, there comes a time to, to begin to rebuild. And for me, rebuilding began on the cornerstone on knowing who Jesus was. And so when I decided to actually follow Jesus, it meant that I wanted to live into my life as it stood right now, not in some day and not some other place and not when I had all my stuff together and not when I went out to be some big evangelical hero. But in this place and in my life right now, I wanted to live the way that I believe Jesus would live my life. That I wanted to actually be a disciple of Jesus. I actually wanted to apprentice myself to his way of life. I cared what he thought about my politics and my opinions and my ideals and my changes. My friend Brian Zond always says, Jesus is what God has to say. If we ever wonder what God has to say, we look to Jesus. In so many ways, Jesus came to show us all the ways we had misrepresented and mischaracterized and misunderstood God. Sometimes that's the story of certain passages in the Bible, is how we didn't get it. And so following Jesus has led me to a lot of changes in my activism and my opinions, how I live out my faith, my marriage, um, how I mother, my engagement with church and community, and all points in between. And it's because I follow Jesus that I want to see God's redemptive movement include women too. I think that that matters. And I believe that above all else, the kingdom of God tastes like the fruit of the spirit, that it looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, that I don't get some sort of free pass on discipleship because I'm a feminist or in transformation or renewal, that my life still needs to be shaped by scripture and by community and by the spirit of God. And so one of the things that um, sometimes is, you know, these are the, these are the places where sometimes it, it's, it's interesting for knowing how to, um, how to move within disagreement or conflict because I don't know if you know this, but one of the little known fruits of the spirit that I employ is conflict avoidance. Very good at it. I'm Canadian. <laughs> Our military is composed of like two, two canoes and a slingshot. <laughs> and yet, 
I believe there is a way to call out evil and injustice and wrongness and powers and principalities to go to war with these things and yet do it in a way that gives glory to God and do it with humility and do it with love and with joy. The thing is, is that peacekeeping is not the same thing as peacemaking, right? We are called to peacemaking, to creating that shalom, to creating that wholeness and that goodness. Sometimes that means conflict, which is so difficult for someone like me. And yet at the same time, I see how often as Christians, we often try to baptize these same tactics that are used against women. And we think that because we're using them because we're right, that somehow that's okay, that we get to employ bullying and silencing and shaming, um, all these, these violence. And so we use these exact same tactics and act like somehow that's okay because we're right. And I don't know that it is. I really believe that Jesus has called us to a better way, a way that includes, a way that it means inclusiveness, a way that means welcome, that's always building bridges and pipelines and, and bringing people along. But what I'm talking about is actually a radically different way of engaging with conflict, of approaching it with the idea of actually making peace. I'm not talking about passive acceptance. I'm talking about actually embodying kingdom come. And one of the things that I find is that when I look through scripture is that so often a follower of Jesus was marked by joy and hope that we were encouraged to forgive 70 times 7. Seeks to serve others, turn the other cheek, not dazzled by platforms and influence, right, but steadily works on behalf of the marginalized and oppressed never really liked the phrase being a voice for the voiceless. I think people always, almost always have a voice. It's just we're not listening. And so I have always really wanted my, my work to be marked by who I build up, not by who I tear down. And I want to be known as someone who speaks life and not death. And who empowers and affirms and speaks truth. And, you know, someone who encourages and walks with people in the process of deconstruction and questioning. But then is also there for the rebuilding. One of the things, I don't know if you guys have any passages of scripture that you just like. Love. I love. I love my Bible. There are so many different passages of scripture that have been incredibly meaningful to me throughout the years. But, you know, I've turned more and more to First John chapter 4 in the last few years in particular, particularly as I've been engaged in a lot of work around women's justice issues, um, poverty worldwide and those types of things. Um, I think maybe because I need it so much. And what he writes is, if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us and his love becomes complete in us, perfect love, when we take up a permanent residence in the life of love. Don't you love that? Permanent residence in a life of love. We live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of our house. I love the idea of love having the run of our house. And becomes at home and mature in us. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear since fear is crippling. A fearful life, fear of death or fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, we are going to be the ones who love. Love and be loved. Because first we were loved, and now we love. He loved us first. And if anyone boasts, I love God, but goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. 
If we won't love the person we can see, how can we love the God we can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Love is bold and prophetic and subversive. Love will have the run of our house. Can you even imagine if we were known by our love? If that was our calling card and our permanent residence, if that had the run of our house? So we'll open. I wanted to actually pray for you. I hope that's okay. Uh, I know the way that I pray may not be always the way that everybody else in this room prays. Um, I was made a joke last night. I, my friend Kelly always calls me ecclesiastically promiscuous because I like love all the traditions. <laughs> and so I know that the way that I pray may not be the way that you grew up praying or experienced prayer, but that's okay. There's room for all of us, right? So if you don't mind, I'd love to pray. Jesus, Here we are in this place and we want to be here right now because we love you. And we want to be with you, walking in your ways always, wherever you would lead us, even though sometimes we don't really know where we're headed. You surprise us. I pray that you would fill all of my friends here with peace that passes all understanding. I pray that each one of them would be drawn into community that is so rich and so deep and so diverse that they will disagree and fight and remain in friendship anyway. And I pray that they would be people who bring coffee and prayer and laughter and tears to one another. I pray that they would have their toes stepped on and their feelings hurt and their opinions challenged, their formulas threatened. And I pray that we would all be given the gift of realizing we were wrong about some very important things. And I pray that we would be ones who are quick to seek forgiveness and make it right when we are the transgressors. In the name of Jesus, I pray that we would have the guts to follow where you lead us. I pray for freedom to reign and I pray for this, this campus to be a place of grace and shalom. I pray that our lives would become outposts, these signs along the path of giving a lost world a glimpse of the abundant life that we have found in you. And Jesus, above all else, may we begin with our own life-giving lives. May we find that abundant life. I pray for messy living rooms or dorm rooms, for late nights, and for dirty dishes on the counters. And I pray that we would each be given a faithful handful of friends and family to call when the darkness presses in close and that we would be people who are quick to show up at the right time for one another. Thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for delighting in us and walking with us. You called us friends, so may we begin there in friendship with you. I pray that we would be a people who would proclaim the kingdom of God, your wild and countercultural, upside-down kingdom ways with our hands and our feet to every, and our voice to every soul in our care and in our influence. I pray that we would long for prayer and for the scriptures and Jesus, that we would be people who can keep secrets and give away our money and share meals and make room at whatever table we end up at and lay down our privilege and sit alone in silence outside under the sky at night and be satisfied. 
I pray that we would be the ones who could both hold babies and comfort the dying and be the voice of knowledge tempered with grace and with wisdom and that we would not be the ones who despise the day of small things, but instead we would find you in beautiful obscurity. I pray for joy to rise in our hearts as a natural response to the truth of you, that we would be people who abide in the vine of who you are, your love and your rest, and knowing that no matter what we face or where we're headed, that we are always headed towards redemption. And even in the times of darkness where it feels like it is nothing but death around us, that even that is part of our story because at the end of that comes resurrection. And I pray that no matter what our tool or our method, whether it is parenting or preaching or teaching or cooking or organizing or leading, all of our lives often encompass almost all these things at some point anyway, that we would walk in the knowledge of the sacredness and purpose of our lives. And I pray for dreams and for visions and for the active leading of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would never forget that we are loved, that love is our identity and our calling card and our home. I pray for perseverance and discipline. I pray for speech seasoned with salt. And I pray that when we are bored and tired and apathetic and fearful, when we are discouraged and frustrated and when we feel futile and small and ridiculous, that we would always remember that love is how we will be known and there is no fear in love. And hope is always worthwhile. I pray that we would each have the courage to turn around and face our lives as they stand right now in this place, that we could look our life in the eye right now because this is it, whether we are surrounded by jelly-faced toddlers or thousands of longing, hungry souls. And if we find ourselves at any point in our life in a classroom or a hospital or a back alley or a boardroom or our own kitchen, first world or developing world, in all places in between Jesus, that we would know the truth and we would practice it with you over and over, learning and living into the fact that we are a people who love. Help us keep our eyes open for signs of your kingdom. You're always surprising us. May we participate where you are already active and move with you for the redemption and rescue and restoration of this world that you love so much. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. In your name. Amen. All right. Does anybody have any questions? I think we have a few minutes. If anyone wanted to ask anything, if not, that's fine too.